we call it collective action, right? The free rider is that, hey, John's staying inside, but you, Sarah, because you don't bear the full cost, you're going to like, I'm going to enjoy the parks now because there's no traffic, so I'm going to go out. And that unravels. Our institutions and our society works because of voluntary compliance, right? Mm -hmm. The jaywalking, the going the speed limit. You know, a lot of this stuff is we do it even though there isn't a police officer there 100% of the time. We do it kind of voluntary because we believe in the system. A new study has some intriguing news related to politics. It explores how the civic capital demonstrated by voting can also keep a society functional, even during a pandemic. We talked about that today on St. Louis on the Air. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. Whether or not you vote turns out to be a good clue to how you're doing with public health guidelines during this pandemic. That's according to a new study co-authored by a professor here in St. Louis. It's being published in the Journal of Public Economics. And joining us today to talk about it is John Berrios. He's a professor of accounting at Washington University's Olin Business School. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah, for having me on today. So your study looks at civic capital. Um, For those of us who aren't in your field, help us understand, what do you mean by that term? You can think of kind of civic capital or like a civic culture as kind of a set of beliefs and attitudes, kind of perceptions that we have in the community that kind of support participation. Um, Participation in elections, for example, right? This notion that we're cooperating, and by cooperating, we kind of resolve kind of free rider problems. So think about, you know, the, the notion of voting from an economist is that there's no like direct economic payoff to voting today, right? You're not going to get any money by going to vote. It's for kind of this greater common good, mm-hmm. right? So to the extent that people are willing to spend so much of their time, I spending like three hours in line, this high personal cost for this common good signals that these communities that have higher participation kind of value, you know, this large social welfare, right? And that's why you get to see them, you know, they pollute less, they engage in more of this compliance, right, where they're not getting any, the private benefit is lower than kind of the social benefit, right? And, the, mm-hmm. and a key example for that is kind of COVID-19, right? You have, a, you have a pandemic where it's not only your behavior that matters, it's my behavior, right? Because if you're really careful wearing a mask, uh, staying indoors, and then I decide to just pop on over after, you know, driving through the streets, uh, you know, going to visit friends, you can't really help that, right? That externality that I'm bearing on you. And as a result, we kind of think that in these areas where there is this kind of civic culture, the civic norms that are prevalent, you would see more of this, you know, voluntary compliance. So you came in with this thesis thinking that you would find that correlation, and you ended up finding it. Tell me how you proved this out. I understand it was a pretty complicated process, but first tell me how you were able to identify these, these areas with high civic capital. Yeah, like as you as you kind of mentioned, this civic capital is very broad. It's very kind of noisy. And as an economist, you want to kind of measure something that's a little bit more tan- tangible, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we kind of went with voter participation because of kind of what I mentioned about how it kind of reflects this attitude and this civicness. Uh, so we got that from kind of election data going back to like the early 2000s of each of the counties. And we kind of classified counties 
that were basically uh, on their average participation over like four or five elections, right? We don't want to capture, it could be that in one-off you have very popular candidates or very divisive candidates, and all of a sudden, you know, 80% of the population comes out. That's not really this kind of invariant or long-term kind of civic attitude. It's more of these areas where you persistently see 70% of the population voting, whether it's for the president or the dog catcher, right? Hmm. And that's kind of where we would expect to find this. But then you need to say, well, how are you going to measure individuals' behaviors, right? And how well are they, you know, socially distancing? Well, we use kind of new data sets available through, you know, your mobile phone and these anonymized mobile phones, right? So there's nothing about your identity or individual identity. It's kind of aggregated, anonymized data from mobile phones and kind of see how much time do these mobile phones spend in what you could classify as their home or are they visiting non-essential places, right? So if you keep on going to the gym during the height of the pandemic, that's kind of a good sign that you're probably not obeying or you're not complying with these social uh, distancing mandates. Uh, So we added that together, a survey of individuals, and then we even went over to Europe and did a similar exercise with their mobile locations and their kind of trust to kind of examine this variation between high civicness and social distancing. And you you persistently see that individuals that trust others that trust kind of the institutions that participated, that have high levels of participation at the county level, are associated with more of this compliance. And even as kind of the states start opening up in these areas where you have high civic capital, you tend to see that people are more kind of cautious in their distancing, right? They're still opening up. But they're not going, you know, it's not like all going to the pool parties all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. So this isn't just about rule following. This is also like, hey, when you're given some freedom, you choose to do the responsible thing. Yeah, I think the the notion of this this kind of set of belief and attitude that's thinking about, you know, everybody behaves when the camera is on. Right. And to judge our civicness and our kind of these these norms and these behaviors, how do you behave when the cameras are off? Right. Mm -hmm. And this notion of like. When I don't have, you know, a police officer standing outside my door making sure that I stay inside so I don't spread the virus, do I still stay inside when nobody's around, right? Mm-hmm. Or do I still wear a mask when I don't feel like, you know, there's a, somebody's going to give me a fine, right? And, and it's this notion that, you know, think of a government, you know, and especially here in the U.S., right? A lot of our stuff, even though there are laws, are kind of our institutions and our society works because of voluntary compliance, right? Mm-hmm. The jaywalking, the going the speed limit, you know, a lot of this stuff is we do it even though there isn't a police officer there 100% of the time, there's a threat that they're there. But a lot of the stuff we do is kind of voluntary, right? Because we believe in the system. And to the extent that you kind of reinforce and trust in these institutions, the more kind of compliance you get, right? You don't need to send the National Guard out to enforce mask wearing in a lot of places because people feel they have a civic duty to do it, right? And that's kind of one way that you can get at these social public health policies versus kind of like a China model, right, where you, you know, you send in the military and you close down the city, right? And you have a, uh, an officer standing at each block making sure people aren't walking around. These are kind of the two extremes. <laughs> so tell me this, this correlation between uh, these places with high civic capital, where a lot of people are routinely going out and voting, and people who are complying with these these public health guidelines, how strong is that correlation? Well, it's, it's, it's pretty strong. So if you could imagine, you know, it's not precisely because yeah, at the end of the day, this is also like isolating just the civic is hard because 
this is also you could imagine related to education levels, mm-hmm. to like family structures, to other practice, like more of the social capital, right? But kind of to the extent where we can measure, you could imagine that you you end up getting in these areas where you have like high civic capital, you end up seeing reductions of like around three to five percent in kind of the, your your compliance, hmm. right? So think about staying, you know, a couple of miles closer to home rather than you know doing these long trips to the to the to the furthest grocery store, right? Uh, so you could imagine that being like a third of these areas where you have like low uh, Trump uh, or low voter participation. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's and it's in addition to partisanship. Right. So you could imagine that part of this could be reflected by, you know, partisan perceptions, because I have another paper that looks at kind of your partisanship and your risk perceptions with the covid. Um, but this is in addition to that. Right. So this is not just like a Democrat Republican thing. If you take two areas that are have this that that have a you know high republican and high democrat and you bury the civic engagement you would still see in the republican areas more compliance when you had high civic engagement right so it's not just a partisanship so if we we kind of controlled for the partisanship in the area that your your education the age profile because you could imagine that age is also important in how to you behave right if, mm-hmm. if you're older and you're more at risk you're gonna it doesn't matter this free rider problem or because, you know, I don't want to die. And, uh, you know, if I'm 80 and high blood pressure, I'm not going to be running around trying to get COVID. <laughs> so you want to control for these things. Uh, so you end up seeing that it, it has, a, you know, an economically significant as well as kind of a statistically significant association with the compliance. Hmm. You mentioned that you also pulled this data for Europe. Did this correlation hold true there as well? Yes. Yeah, so you, so the, uh, w- one question is, like, is this just the U.S.? And then in Europe, we can go. Um, the problem in Europe is we can't we can't use the voter participation directly because in a lot of European countries, it's mandated voting. Hmm. So everybody has to vote. So it's very hard to get voluntary notions of civic capital when you're, you know, by law, everybody has to vote. So we use other proxies is trust, right? General trust other people. And that's kind of the same spirit, right? If you're in a community where you trust others, you're more likely to engage in compliant behavior without needing, you know, strict government enforcement, because you kind of believe that, hey, if I'm staying inside, I know you're going to stay inside, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the, this notion of a think we call it collective action, right? The free rider is that, hey, John's staying inside, but you, Sarah, because you don't bear the full cost, you're going to like, I'm going to enjoy the parks now because there's no traffic, so I'm going to go out. And that unravels, right? Because then everybody says, let's go out. <laughs> Whereas if I trust you and you trust me, we don't have to have the cops out there in enforcing this. You're, you'll stay inside because you trust that I will also stay inside, right? So this, in, this uh, you know, incentive to deviate isn't as there. And we see this in Europe as well. You see, like, areas like Sweden, for example, that have high civic capital, have high trust. Mm-hmm. A lot of their measures and their mandates are voluntary, right? They still say, you, you know, businesses shouldn't have more than 10 people. You should stay at home. But they're not, like, strictly enforced by some military or by some like strict close all the business kind of stuff mm-hmm. it's more on we, we're trusting in the communities to kind of self-monitor and self uh, yeah, yeah uh, sorry uh, behave accordingly versus in italy where it has lower levels of civic capital you kind of see that you have to take a more strong arm right that you gotta have to you go into milan in these areas and you got to close down the city right and have the mayors running around the street screaming at people to get inside Right. That's kind of if you remember from the beginning, that was that's the distinction between kind of the civic capital where it's in high areas where you can rely on the social 
and the voluntary compliance versus areas that you don't see this kind of civic capital there and you have to kind of really enforce it, right? So hearing these these conclusions, it seems like what we need to do to get COVID-19 under control is just to build more civic capital. Is that, uh, is that an easy well, thing to you do? Well, it's easier said than done. Right. right? Like it's, so a lot of the thing, this is kind of, this takes generations, right? These beliefs and attitudes form over time, right? You can think of like either through, you know, your parents instilling it, through the education system, through the trust in the institutions, right? This notion that if, you know, elections are rigged or if, uh, uh, if the other party is going to basically steal, that kind of deteriorates, depreciates our civic capital, right? Hmm. That kind of brings it down. If you don't trust the system, you don't engage with it, right? And we kind of see that in other segments of our, uh, of other, you know, of our social lives, right, and other events that occur where there's certain groups that don't feel or trust this, uh, the, the institutions and we kind of get an unraveling, right? Hmm. And we don't rely on the institutions because we don't trust them. So it's easier said than done, right? These takes generations and years to develop, right? You can't just snap your finger and then everybody says, oh, we're all, we're all high civic. So that's why we don't push too much on, you know, this, this treatment effect. It's not kind of like, you know, you get, a, you get an, anti, uh, um, an antiviral and you can measure what's the effect on your, your health because a lot of this treatment is also kind of being developed over time, right? We can't mm-hmm. just magically snap it into place. But I think... The, the, the notion being that we want to make investments in this, right? We want to kind of cultivate civic capital. We want, to, we want to make sure that we make investments to kind of motivate people to kind of have trust in our institutions. And to the extent that we can increase trust in others in our society and our institutions, we're kind of hopefully see more, you know, voluntary compliance. And coming from kind of a free society, you would hope that that would be the way that we're able to function, right, voluntarily. We wouldn't want to have our full lives be mandated, right? Yeah, it should be that we should trust people. It's certainly a better way to live, and, and I guess that should be the takeaway for us here on Election Day. We want to find a way to increase that trust and increase the civic capital. So John Berrios, professor of accounting at Washington University's Olin Business School, I want to thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this new study. Thank you for having me. Go out and vote, people. <laughs> it's a great message to end on there as well. That study, again, was in the Journal of Public Economics, and it looks at how compliance with public health mandates correlates to high civic engagement and things like voting. A good study for today. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.